it's okay if you get confused. I have a lot to cover. The handout has everything, all the slides in it, okay? And what I'll do is try to give you the overview of the things that I want to cover and just make sure that you understand. Tuberculosis is one of those things, um, one of those diseases that here in Iowa we see infrequently. And what I want to emphasize at the beginning and at the end is that there are a bunch of us that are interested in tuberculosis, pulmonologists, and our phone numbers are, are my phone pager is in the slides and on the one-page handout that I'm giving in two slides, it's called the TB card, which is you can shrink to a card. I have made a bunch of cards, but it's currently the card that I have is version 9, and you got version 10 in your hand right there, and I haven't made it down into a card. And it's harder for me to read the cards these days, I think, and so I haven't been as enthusiastic about making it. So um, I, this is uh, Halloween season, and... Um, these are some of the things that came to my door. I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know if it's animal abuse or what, but uh, just a little revenge here. I, I like to make this interactive. A three-legged dog walked into the saloon in the Old West. He limps up to the bar and announces, what? Just, I'm going to ask you questions throughout. Yeah, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. Okay, good. So we're going to talk about, quickly, TB epidemiology as transmission and transmission. Look at this alphabet soup here. You guys recognize all these abbreviations? These are all abbreviations that have come to light about tuberculosis and its, and its diagnosis just in the last couple years, okay? So that's another important point, is the technology, that's the title, in the title here, the technology of diagnosing tuberculosis is rapidly progressing. So you need to understand some of the new technology, perhaps the abbreviations go with it, or certainly know who to call if you have some questions about that. I'll have the latest treatment recommendations again in the handout and on the card that I'm passing out, but I probably won't be able to go into detail about how to do that. We live in a world where we're all connected very closely, and tuberculosis, not as big a problem in the United States, but in the world is huge. Two million TB-related deaths every year, two million, okay, people die. Every day, 20,000 people develop the disease, and 5,000 die every single day in the world. Resistance is very common, and you probably heard about it a lot in the news a few months ago when that guy who uh, flew to France to get married and uh, had multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, it turned out, after the fact. Uh, places where it's the biggest problem uh, these statistics really uh, apply to are Southeast Asia, Central Africa, India and China, Eastern Europe, Russia, and South America, and a lot of, a lot of the data is really not known because those places are hard to get accurate data from. So <clears throat> when we talk about tuberculosis in the United States then, it really is a disease that comes to us from our foreign-born immigrants, all right? And it's, uh, I don't mean that to be uh, sort of disrespectful to our foreign-born immigrants, but I just think we have to be realistic and look at it that way. The proportion of TB cases in foreign-born has increased from less than 25% in 1986 to 2004, the last time I got these statistics, over 50%. So more than half the active cases in this country today are due to people who had tuberculosis and came here and developed active disease once they are here. So U.S.-born TB cases, that is people born in the United States who then develop active tuberculosis, has continually decreased across the same time frame. Multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, that's what MDR-TB stands for, 
is, occurs most commonly in our foreign-born people. Let me just ask you, what does multi-drug resistance mean? It has a specific definition. What are the main drugs that we use for tuberculosis treatment? INH. INH. Rifampin. Rifampin. Thambutol. Pyrazinamide. Okay. So multi-drug resistant means resistant to the main two antibiotics that we use for tuberculosis, which are, and those four, INH and rifampin, are the backbone. They run throughout the course of treatment, and they're the reason we can shorten treatment to six months. So patients with MDR-TB, by definition, are resistant to both INH and rifampin to start with out of the gate, okay? So it does compromise and make, uh, complicate the treatment uh, substantially. The people in this country who we see most often with, uh, with tuberculosis as well as drug-resistant tuberculosis are Latin Americans and Southeast Asians. Um, that includes India. Uh, concentrated mostly in the big urban centers where these immigrants tend to live when they first get here. New York, New Jersey, California, Florida, and along the Texas border and uh, around Chicago. Active cases most often arise from prior infection. So they were infected before, and we'll get into the, how that occurs in a little bit more detail later. And then they develop active disease when they come here. And interestingly enough, <clears throat> more than half occur within the first five years of arrival. So after they get to this country, the time that they're most likely to develop active disease seems to occur in the first five years. The case rate, if you look at foreign-born, is around 30. That's at least eight times uh, the current rate in the United States, which is now less than five per 100,000, okay? So um, a, lot of, um, a lot of the tuberculosis then is foreign-born. So how does this affect Iowa? As we look at Iowa and the smiling hog, we basically see the same thing. The green bars are non-U.S. cases. Yellow bars are the U.S. cases, all right? So um, in the last five years, five to seven years, the foreign-born have exceeded the U.S.-born uh, cases. The other thing to take home from this slide is that Iowa is generally a rural state. So we don't see more than 50 to 70 cases per year. And it's been pretty much the same throughout the last decade and the decade before. But what has changed substantially, as you can see from the bars, is that there are many more foreign-born that come here and develop active tuberculosis. And then we've had one case of drug-resistant disease about, each, about one case per year. So analogous, basically, to the U.S. Uh, epidemiology. So if you talk about people, all people who are infected with tuberculosis, okay, I like to break it down into two major categories, all right? just to remind you of the basic pathophysiology. Active tuberculosis and latent infection, or latent tuberculosis infection. So the majority of cases are actually latent tuberculosis. The subset that we all recognize and worry about are the active cases. And in the emergency room, these are the ones you need to be suspicious for. But it takes about, it's about 2 to 5% of all patients who are infected with tuberculosis become active in the first one to two years, and they are sick, coughing, have no energy, losing weight, fevers, may have hemoptysis, and that is the disease form which is highly contagious and we worry about and need to isolate. So active infection, and then I'll show you in a second, sort of the, uh, so it's sort of like a iceberg effect. 
The top of the iceberg is the active infection. Latent infection is pretty much everything else under the water. 95 to 98% of infected individuals generally have latent infection. They appear healthy. You wouldn't recognize it in any way. They have a normal chest x-ray. They can't spread the tuberculosis to other people. And latent infection, though, accounts for the majority of tuberculosis in 5 to 7% with latent infection at some time in their life will, pro will progress to active disease, okay? So a small subset of these folks develop active disease. Of course, immunosuppression is a major risk factor for this to occur, but it can occur spontaneously, all right? Yeah. When they first contract the disease, is there a name for that phase of the disease? Yeah, I try, to stay, I try to stay away from all that because that's exactly what happens. People start asking me, well, how do you classify? Is this primary? Is this reactivation? So what you're talking about, the initial stages of disease is primary TB and when it's symptomatic. Yeah, so, so it's just, so they would be active and they, they become latent. Yes. Right, so it can be a very transient, uh, subclinical uh, process. Uh, it's more often occurs in children, and then again, when we're talking about United States, people in this country, we don't see primary tuberculosis because most patients are, are not transmitting disease very commonly, and what we're seeing is this part, latent disease, and the fact that it's the source of most of our active diseases. When you look at it, there are 10 million persons in this country that probably have latent tuberculosis infection. We actually don't report that, so this is a gross estimation based on, you know, small sub-segments of population. And most of the immigrants that I was talking about in the prior slide, then, are in this category when they get here. They have latent tuberculosis and they progress to active disease. So it behooves us to be um, looking for those individuals and trying to treat them before they become active. Because after all, you can treat latent tuberculosis and prevent that person from developing active tuberculosis. And we'll get into that in more detail later. Let's focus first on patients with active tuberculosis. Because in the emergency room, that's what you have to be really aware of and how to identify those individuals. So if you've got an immunocompetent patient, 85% of those people will come in with pulmonary disease. All right, so that's, that's why pulmonologists are very much involved historically in this particular disease, all right? So it's a pulmonary disease in most patients. The other percentage can have extra pulmonary disease at primary presentation, and that's, again, relatively uncommon, and it's usually extra pulmonary disease, and I put the plus sign next to that 15% because some patients with pulmonary disease will also have simultaneous extrapulmonary manifestations as well. So there's overlap with the extrapulmonary and pulmonary disease, so you, you need to remember that. Then if you have an immunocompromised patient, you can't rely on these kinds of presentations at all. They may or may not have pulmonary disease when they present, and if they do have pulmonary disease, it won't look like the pulmonary disease that you see in the textbook, the upper lobe cavitary disease. That's very uncommon in AIDS or immunocompromised patients. So you have to be very suspicious, much more suspicious, and uh, understand that they present atypically, and, and you have to actually look for the bug, usually on biopsies or in, in secretions, uh, before you can be certain, if you don't find it, that you can rule it out. So what is the most dangerous type of tuberculosis to healthcare workers working in the emergency room? 
What's the most dangerous form? What's that? Active. active disease. But not just active disease. The unknown active disease. The patient who's undiagnosed, the unsuspected case. So that, I just throw that out there because um, you just have to always be suspicious, all right? What factors determine how infectious somebody is is also helpful to remember. Now, this is a relatively busy slide, and, but there's some basic points about transmission. Aerosol only transmits tuberculosis. So uh, people um, always ask me about what, do you, you know, what that means, and we'll talk about that in, in further detail as we walk through the factors associated with aerosol transmission, all right? So about uh, one out of five close contacts. And close contacts means people that live in the same house, all right? So if you've got two people living in a house, one has tuberculosis and the other does not, at the time of diagnosis of that person with tuberculosis, there's a one in five chance that that other person has been infected. And this could have been exposure over weeks to months, all right? So there are a lot of factors, that go, so it's not as contagious as many other diseases that we talk about when we talk about contagion, but it's, it is respiratory contagious. What are the factors that affect transmission? The disease in the lung, airway, or larynx. So if the disease is cavitary in the lung, there's more organisms in the sputum, and so that's more likely to be uh, um, transmitted. And in the larynx, which is a rare form of TB, often accompanies, most 99% of the time, accompanies lung disease. When they have laryngeal disease, there's more likely to be transmission. Uh, the way the patient's coughing, if they're covering their mouth or doing things to cover their mouth, is less likely to be transmission. How concentrated the droplet nuclei are, again, gets back to the talk, what I told you before. If the smear is positive, they're likely to be transmitting disease. If the smear is negative, but turns out to be culture positive, you rarely find that those individuals actually cause somebody else to develop disease, either active or latent. So it, again, it's roughly correlating with the amount of organisms in the sputum. So people with cavitary disease usually have positive sputums. People without cavitary disease often don't have positive <coughs> sputums. I'll ask, I have this in the slide later, but let me ask you this. If you have a smear, if you're looking at it in the microscope, you probably aren't looking at it, but somebody in the lab is, how many organisms per cc of sputum, and I love to talk about sputum, sorry about that, but that's my job, and it's better than being in GI is what I always say. <laughs> so um, how many bugs per cc does it have to be for them to see it, one bug after looking at 100 fields under the high power uh, dark field examination or acid fast examination? What do you think? It's, it, uh, this, if you don't know this, it will blow you away because it, it well, generally does. It takes 10,000 bugs per cc to reach that threshold, okay? 10,000, all right? So it goes back to the fact that you have to have a lot of bugs in your system to actually see it on smear. And the smear is not very sensitive by itself. The culture is more sensitive because that 10,000 bugs that may not reach the threshold to see on the smear is enough to, to grow in culture. So we, f we, don't, uh, we do run into this in patients who have early disease. They don't have a positive smear, but their culture becomes positive. And it gets back to what I said at the beginning and what we talked about with PE. 
is that if you have a high index of suspicion, then if the smear is negative, you should proceed as if that person does have tuberculosis. Okay? And that theme comes through over and over again. Infection rate drops almost immediately as soon as you start that person on treatment. All right? That's from old data in the VA hospital in Baltimore, which I had the opportunity to work in. It's a wonderful place uh, in VA, but at the, as VAs go, um, had to culture your own plates at night and do things like that. Take your own chest x-rays. We used to have a great time at night. Anyway, so the infection rate drops off as soon as you start treatment, within a day or two. We usually throw out a two-week number there because we just want to be absolutely sure. But um, it's really hard to find any infections after the day or two after the first day of treatment, day or two after the first day of treatment. There are a lot of factors that in terms of transmission um, and related to ventilation, how, si how big the space is. And then there are factors that we don't really understand very well, like how susceptible an individual host is. I've stared down the bronchoscope without a mask on on several occasions, patients who actually turned out to be tuberculosis, but I skin test negative still to this day. So there are some people who carry natural immunity and there's a theory, you know, that all the people that actually were more susceptible died off years ago when TB was epidemic and those of us who still survive to live today carry some sort of natural immunity that's undefined and difficult to measure. And then there's poorly understood bacterial characteristics. When you go back and look at these studies, you can almost now by DNA technology identify one organism that was predictably always going to transmit disease, whereas nine others never did, okay? So there are organism-related factors as well. So I told you at the beginning it's somewhat complicated, but this kind of general rule of thumb follows. One in five people in close contact situations are going to develop active disease for all those various re re reasons. Yep, that's a great question. I meant to say that as I was going through the slide. So if someone coughs, onto the surface, okay? And then you come along and wipe your hand across the surface and then lick your hand, you're not gonna get tuberculosis. If you get tuberculosis, it's because of all the droplets nuclei that are hanging around in the air after that person coughed, okay? So once the organism hits a solid surface, it no longer is contagious, no longer can transmit disease for reasons, and that's been tested many different ways and been shown to be very reliable. So it's only the aerosolized droplet nuclei, which are hard to measure and can hang around in the air for hours after an infected person leaves. So, um, so that's why we take a lot of steps with respiratory isolation to make sure air exchanges are at least 12-fold 12 12 per hour uh, to do that. Does that, an that answers your yeah. question and comment? cause anybody else to have other questions related? That's a very good point. Now, I see I'm already running out of time. Decisions now, how do we actually treat these patients? Luckily, we're not like Michael. We don't have to make a decision every day what kind of face we're going to wear. So how would you proceed then with a diagnostic workup of a patient suspected of tuberculosis, pulmonary tuberculosis? Three separate all right, good. What's the first thing you're going to do, though, if they're in your emergency? Yeah, put them in an isolation room. And in fact, when you look at the three-tiered type of isolation, of, there is three tiers. There is administrative controls, which is being really suspicious and having lots of, and making sure you have a, a protocol in place to deal with isolation of these patients. Second is good 
respiratory air exchange, and third is the mask. All right, the mask has never been shown to be that protective if you've got one and two in place. All right, so um, I just want you to know, get that person in isolation. Then they're basically safe. All right, and wear a mask, yes, and it should be a 95, N95 fitted respiratory protective device, which is either a duckbill, which I carry around with me, or the other uh, 3M like sort of cup mask, which is hard to carry around. Uh, yeah, so um, that gets back to the first, uh, that other slide on transmission. It's a droplet nuclei that are aerosolized that transmit. Now, <clears throat> you don't need to put an N95 mask on that individual. All you have to do is put something over their mouth when they cough, all right, when they're coughing, because that will capture all those droplet nuclei, large and small, and they're no longer contagious. Are, are there any studies showing, I mean, for like, Hygiene or etiquette, or when people come in, so, well, in, for your case, I guess you'd be more familiar with clinics. But if you hand them a mask and put it on, does it decrease not only for this but for other respiratory? Well, people have tried really hard to study that, and that's a very hard thing to control for, right? Because uh, uh, for obvious reasons. So, um, but what people have extrapolated in terms of respiratory protection. And, and you're asking about the patient. And you have the, you know, they come into triage, you cough, I get hand you a mask. Does that actually do anything? I would not do that because uh, you're, they, you're putting the responsibility on that patient. And, uh, and you don't want to do that. You, you take the responsibility. If you suspect a respiratory transmittable disease, put them in respiratory isolation, in a room where there's respiratory isolation immediately. I, that's the best answer to that question. I, I agree. Oftentimes, though, we have... 20 people. Yeah. Um, we don't have 20 I have them sit outside in the parking lot until, uh, <laughs> seriously, I, I mean, I think particularly if you have 20 other people in that room, okay? No, 20 with all of them hacking up. I'm saying, right. you know, in the waiting room. In the waiting room. Well, there's, really well, no, yeah, there's no good answer. There is no good answer for that. You're right. And uh, the good, the, 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 the patients with tuberculosis in this part of the country are going to be few and far between. So, uh, so put the person in respiratory isolation. Now, in terms of diagnosis, it looks like I'm not going to have time to go through much of this. The skin test is not very helpful in the acute uh, phase because it takes two days for it to come back. And uh, many patients with active disease are falsely negative. The chest x-ray, I'll just uh, skip over. Sputum smears, new technology, all right? This is where uh, technology comes in. I told you already it takes 10 to the 4 bugs per mil for it to even detect one bug in 100 slide, 100 fields examined under high power. Uh, so it has a high false negative rate, uh, which is very high in non-cavitary disease. Can um, not distinguish TB from other mycobacteria when you see that acid fast bacillus. And in Iowa, in that in my practice, it's more likely not tuberculosis. It's more likely non-tuberculosis, a non-tuberculous mycobacterium when I see a positive smear. All right. So um, culture and susceptibility. Susceptibility is key. Okay. Make sure you order that because we live in an era where there's high rates of drug resistance, and uh, this is all data that you can look at later. This is what I wanted to highlight. We have nucleic acid amplification tests now available. You should use it. If you have a highly suspicious case, what's the advantage? If they, you know that that acid fast bacillus within a day is mycobacterium tuberculosis now, all right? Or it's not. 
It's something else, all right? And there's the MTD is one of the alphabet soups that I talked about at the beginning. Mycobacterium tuberculosis direct, it's done at the state hygienic lab at your request. Um, or if they have a positive smear, they'll probably do it anyway, all right? So, uh, if you, and it's capable of being done on smear negative sputum, whereas the Amplicor, the prior test, is not approved for smear negative sputum. So this is a DNA amplification test. It's called the MTD test, Mycobacterium tuberculosis direct. So a, neg so a negative smear will still, if there's negative smear, there's a present there's disease in that patient, uh -huh. the MTD should, the sensitivity of that is... Is enough to pick it up, uh, and I can't give you a number, but it will pick but up more, right. yeah, it'll pick up more than uh, the acid-fast smear is. But, and then the old rule of thumb still comes back, that if both are negative and you have an abnormal chest x-ray for which you're highly suspicious, treat them anyway, okay? Treat them until you get that culture back that's negative, all right? Or you get other data, yeah. So just kind of review, like down in the emergency department, if you're suspicious, get the chest x-ray, that would be concerning. That's the only thing that we're going to get back yeah. down there. Mm -hmm. We treat off of... I would treat. So I put that right here. Start treatment immediately if you suspect cases to reduce, reduce the risk of further transmission. That's your job. That's our job to identify these cases early. There's less harm done if you start treatment immediately. Four drugs immediately. State, uh, the state will pay for that. Um, they'll get the drugs to that patient within 24 hours. You know, it's not like they have to walk out having taken those medications, because after all, you're sending them back into the same environment that they came from, all right? They're more dangerous in your emergency room and in our hospital than they are back home, all right? Most cases, that's another important point. Most cases of tuberculosis don't need to be admitted to the hospital because they're not that sick. They don't have, unless they have massive hemoptysis or they have a tuberculous empyema that needs to be drained or something like that. Um, or, um, or they're going back into an environment where there are lots of little kids uh, who are going to be, you know, you want to remove them from that kind of environment because TB meningitis is more common in kids and you, you basically want to get those kids in and evaluate them and don't send that patient back into that environment in that situation. So in most cases you can start treatment immediately if you're suspicious. And again, we're available by phone to help look over your shoulder, look at that chest x-ray and say, yep, yep, I think we ought to treat that or no, why don't we wait, we can do something else. That, there's a couple possibilities here, but in general, I err on the side of treating almost every time. These are then more guidelines. What's DOT mean? Directly observed therapy, okay? You can just see from this blurry slide that the more DOT you do, the better the outcomes. It's up to 90% success uh, in tr finishing treatment in six months. I'll skip the fun facts and uh, just mentioned latent tuberculosis, new technologies replacing old there. Old technology is, is this, the skin test. The new technology is um, the quantiferon gold test or a QFTG. How many of you have heard of that? That's a uh, interferon re gamma release assay or it's also known as a blood analysis for mycobacterium tuberculosis, more alphabet soup. It is available through the state hygienic, through the UIC state hygienic lab connection. All right, the, the problem is the, it's expensive, costs $86 a test, and I'm not sure it's so new that most insurance companies don't know and probably won't cover it. Um, and it's most useful in latent tuberculosis uh, diagnosis. And basically, 
you know T cells, when they're stimulated with a tuberculous antigen, will release interferon gamma. All right, so what this test does is isolate the T cells from the individual's blood, expose it to two very specific antigens, ESAT6 and the CFP10, which are only found on Mycobacterium tuberculosis, not Mycobacterium bovis, which is the bug in BCG. So it doesn't cross-react in BCG-type uh, individuals, doesn't cross-react with other non-tuberculous mycobacteria in general, except for M Mycobacterium kansasii, but yeah, you don't see that very often. So um, it's a very specific test, and it's likely going to replace the skin test once it becomes more widely available. And they just had an update in the test released by and uh, approved by the uh, FDA in October, which now makes this test even more widely uh, available. It used to be you have the draw of blood, still is, until they get these tests spread out throughout the country. Had to draw the blood within 10 hours. You had to run it, okay? So you had to be able to do the test on site. And it's not a very easy test to perform for laboratories. But with this Git in tube version, we're going to be able to wait three or four days before we have to get it to the lab. And what I recommend, if you're thinking about doing this test, call specimen control, ask for Martha in the sendouts, and Martha can tell you how to do this because it has to get right over to the state hygienic lab the day that you draw it. And it has to be drawn before noon if you're going to do it. So it still has some impracticality. So we still have to understand the skin test and how to interpret it. All right. So I've kind of quickly gone through blood analysis for mycobacterium tuberculosis or interferon gamma release test, which is the QFTG test. That's alphabet soup. Uh, again, my pager's in the handout. Nucleic acid amplification test, which here is the MTD test for active disease, and the blood test for latent tuberculosis. So it's amazing. New technology in both parts of the disease that are really going to help us in the future. So I'm going to skip through to the end. You're probably having one of those deja mu moments for the rest of this. The feeling is you heard this bowl before. Um, here's, uh, as I promised you, it's in your handout. Treatment for latent tuberculosis in case you run out into it. If you feel overloaded by these treatment details, you can find the information at uh, www.thoracic.org, which is the American Thoracic Society, or the CDC has the same guidelines. They're all um, uniform. I have it on my PDA. If you want, I can beam it to you. If you've got a palm type device, uh, I'm not going to have time to hit you with some of these new, even more new information about tuberculosis. What I hope you understand is the unsuspected TB is the most dangerous. So make sure you, you suspect it and have a high index of suspicion. You should seek through the history to determine whether they have active or latent TB infection and uh, the drug modifying regimens, uh, drug regimen modifying issues. Susceptibility should be obtained with every culture. Four drugs is the cornerstone of current treatments. DOT for everybody with active tuberculosis. LTB, I, re I, I reviewed that and how to make the diagnosis with these new tests. Uh, the QFT Gold or the MTD for active tuberculosis. The uh, Iowa Pop Public Dep Health Department provides medications for both active and latent tuberculosis, okay? Just have to call them up and they'll give you a fax number and you go and fax that prescription. If you have a question, call me, text page me. Uh, there are others in my division that will help you out. Yeah. Can you walk me through this um, case? Somebody in jail mm -hmm. who says they had a positive 
Mm -hmm. um, how would you approach that? Well, that's a high-risk individual because they have a positive skin test. First question is, many patients in the jail with a positive skin test have already received treatment for latent tuberculosis. So I'd ask. And they probably... All right. Yeah, but the, the jailers do. They have, or the health department in the jail can tell you quickly. And that's what I offer. If they have not, I'd isolate them, put you in the isolation room, get the chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is normal, then you don't have to worry. Then they've got an upper respiratory tract infection or another cause for their cough. All right? That's what I would do first, the chest x-ray. And say they have received treatment prior. They received latent tuberculosis treatment yeah. prior. I probably do a similar sort of, I wouldn't I necessarily uh, as aggressively try to isolate them. Specifically, if you've got somebody else who's higher risk in your isolation room, you could probably put this person in a regular room, get their chest x-ray. Um, because if they receive treatment for latent tuberculosis infection, they've been in the jail long enough, which many of these folks are in long enough because they get nine months of treatment with INH when they first show, because this jail skin tests everybody and, and puts everybody on treatment. So um, if that reduces the probability of them developing active tuberculosis to less than 1%, all right? Remember, it's 5% per life, for a lifetime, in somebody with a positive skin test. So it reduces it. Uh, substantially to less than 1%. Do they jail skin test everybody in the Johnson County jail? Oh, so uh, that's a good point. The, the, the definition between jail and prison, all right? So prison, yes. Jail, no. Okay. All right. So, okay. So if it's somebody who's in overnight for, you know, drunken disorderly conduct or uh, waiting for a trial date, uh, then then uh, you're not going to have much information. You're probably going to want to isolate that one and uh, acquire that chest x-ray right away. And, if the and will the Department of Public Health pay for the medication if they're in jail? If they're in the county? Yeah. Okay. Doesn't matter where they are. Yeah. How about that case from a few months back with the international flight? Mm -hmm. What was the big issue with that? I mean, he did have MDR, but he also sound like he was in the latent phase and felt fine, was doing okay. Right. In fact, it was very hard to get information about that yeah. whole thing. And uh, there was a lot of misinformation in the news. So um, I think the bottom line was his smear was negative. Mm -hmm. He did have, uh, turn out to have active uh, uh, multi-drug resistant, actually not just multi-drug, he had the uh, form that's called um, extensively resistant drug re or resistant TB. So, um, but, and he picked it up probably because he had contacts with people that worked with it in the lab, or he himself may have gotten it that way. But he had a very early case with smear negative, and uh, therefore, just because he is resistant tuberculosis, he's no more trans contagious than anybody else with, uh, you know, non resistant tuberculosis. So, if you're smear negative, and you're on treatment, you can go anywhere, all right? If you're smear negative and uh, early in the diagnosis, I would feel a little nervous about sending somebody on an international flight because the air is often recirculated uh, in those flights, although they do pipe in outside air. It's still been shown that it's, and they have HEPA filters in the system. So, um, so that it's relatively low risk, but you know how people are sitting right on top of each other in those flights, uh, generally. So, um, 
The last time a study was done on that was in the late 70s, and it showed that there was transmission throughout, you know, the adjacent seats in the cabin. And uh, I don't think anybody's done that kind of study since because everybody knows there's risk there, and you just don't want to send somebody on a flight. I don't know if I answered your question, but there... Well, the, so was, was he active or late? I thought he was like, in the latent phase. And you know, I, I was on a listserv to try to find that out. A bunch of us were, and, uh, you know, because of HIPAA and other things, we really never got any information, and a lot of stuff that was circulating in the news was secondhand and not correct. So he was either latent Yes, right. I think it was true that the smear was negative, and they knew that before they allowed him to go. And I'm not even sure why it started to, um, you know, accelerate um, once the media got it, other than the fear factor. The well, fear factor. That, it's a slow news day. Yeah, right, exactly.